Hi, everybody, and thank you for joining us for this uh, podcast. And with me today is Alfredo de Massis, and we're going to be talking about COVID-19 challenges and specifically for family businesses and some of the lessons from Alfredo's excellent research on resilience and some potential thoughts around how can we achieve resilience, but also how can we avoid problems like inertia and actually the difference between being resilient and, and not changing. So Alfredo is full professor of family business and entrepreneurship. Thank you for making the time to join me, uh, Alfredo. I realize you're super busy. Thank you very much, Matt. It was a real pleasure to, 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 to respond to your kind invitation and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And Alfredo, of course, you're one of the world's most foremost experts on family business and especially on family business innovation. So it's even more brilliant that you can join me today. So maybe I can begin with my first question, which is, you know, you've been recently investigating major challenges posed by COVID-19. And what do you see as the big family business challenges posed by COVID-19 now and into the future? Thank you for, uh, for this question. Well, you know, of course, uh, we have been uh, witnessing real time uh, as uh, experts, academics, uh, and, uh, and, and advisors working with family firms that they are currently struggling with, uh, you know, with, with some kind of issues. And I would say that the short term ones are things like, you know, normal cash challenge or issues with the safety among family members and other employees, etc. But if we think a little bit more, you know, long term, and if we think a little bit more about the aftermath of COVID-19, I think that there are five really important uh, challenges that are likely to kind of uh, question many of the assumptions that we have in the field. And also these are challenges that are particularly urgent because uh, unless family business owners, managers, and people working with them for family firms start thinking about this now, you know, they might, uh, they might really uh, come into problems. Mm -hmm. So I have grouped this challenge around five main categories. The first one deals with generational transition. And here, you know, my point is this. Uh, as you know, as a family business, a well-known family business scholar, you know, succession has been so far considered as a long process that needs to be methodically planned and executed. So our view is that succession is a lengthy process that needs to be planned and carefully executed. Now, this uh, pandemic and its economic and uh, health reverberation have been uh, bringing up, uh, bringing in demographic challenges, uh, heightened awareness of mortality among family business leaders, uh, and all, you know, because we have been seeing people like business leaders passing away, family members passing away or getting sick. And so this has, uh, is leading, is gradually leading to rapid and unexpected succession. Mm -hmm. So if uh, before COVID, we could still reason around succession as a long process, and you know, where you have the time to develop a proper plan, I think that one effect of this pandemic will be that, uh, you know, succession will be more accelerated. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, probably most of this succession will be unplanned because it will happen, you know, suddenly. 
And so I think here, you know, family business uh, practitioners and also family business scholars cannot uh, uh, avoid to ask themselves, uh, how can I make an unplanned succession work mm. in the family business? Under what circumstances is planning a succession beneficial? How can I do now in this new normality that we require new stamina, new, a new perspective? How can I deal with that? Uh, what capabilities are needed to manage this rapid and unexpected succession? Probably the processes are completely different. Mm. How the, you know, the awareness of mortality that each of us has been experiencing uh, will affect the motivations to have a succession as well as the ability to do that. Mm. Example, we know that one of the biggest issues uh, you know, about succession is the, what some of our colleagues call the syndrome of letting go, right? The fact that this family business incumbent, the senior generation, is very much reluctant to, 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 to live, uh, to let the business go because they are emotionally attached to the business. And so, you know, I think there will be a lot to work because we will be facing a massive wave of generational transitions and this transition will be accelerated. Mm. A second important challenge uh, deals with the area of, uh, I would say, internal and external relationships. You have done uh, a lot of work about social capital. So this yes. is about social capital. Yep. You Thank are known for your, for, your, for your published studies on this topic. And there, what, uh, what is the key assumption that we had in the family business field? The key assumption is that uh, the presence of a family in a business engenders long-lasting personal social relationships with internal and external actors. There are studies showing that uh, you know, one of the sources of competitive advantage of family firms is in their amazing capability or capacity to build up uh, long-term personal relationships. Uh, some uh, uh, scholars even talk about personalism to, you know, to, to, to indicate this kind of personalized way. Now, we know that this pandemic, again, has been uh, pushing family business actors to practice social distancing, to work from home, to do you know, smart working, what is typically, it is becoming a big buzzword, the smart working. Mm. And so, you know, again, uh, um, these, all these uh, new practices that uh, are necessary and that, of course, you know, will become uh, also uh, something uh, really very much present even in the new normal after the pandemic, have the big risk of dehumanizing the relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you do smart working, when you do social distancing, of course, the dehumanization of relationships is a risk. And the dehumanization of relationships in a family business may jeopardize the distinctive family business social capital and may destroy uh, you know, family relationships. So again, I, I think there are some key important questions on which family business leaders and family business professionals need to work now. How can I on the one hand, leverage and exploit the potential of these new technologies and these new ways of working, while at the same time preserving, you know, uh, this uh, uh, unique and distinctive social capital of family firms without jeopardizing 
Moreover, you know, still again about relationship, we know that, uh, for example, across Europe during the lockdown, there has been uh, one of the effects has been an increase in the number of divorces. Mm. And, you know, this kind of, we know from our research that, uh, unfortunately, divorces, so issues uh, at the family level, in a family business, uh, then, uh, you know, are reflected also at the business level. So again, I think there is a lot of work needed to understand how can family business preserve and develop their distinctive external and internal social capital while adopting digitalized work routine. You know, whether, for example, you know, smart work routines might increase, for example, bifurcation bias. Bifurcation bias is this phenomenon by which you have an asymmetric treatment of family versus non-family employees. Yeah. Is this, uh, you know, being amplified or not when you rely on smart routine, etc. Mm. A third important area of challenge refers to, uh, you know, the area of social-emotional wealth and goals. Again, we both know, having published studies, uh, you know, uh, on this topic, that uh, social-emotional wealth uh, which is, by the way, for the, for, for the average re, uh, person who is attending this webinar or who is listening to us, is, uh, you know, a kind of wealth that is non-financial and is the wealth that is typically accumulated when family members, typically family owners, push family-centered non-economic goals. Now, we know this has been a very important concept. And uh, uh, we know that family-centered non-economic goals and the ensuring preservation of social-emotional wealth have been acknowledged as the primary driver of family business decision-making. Yeah. Now, again, this pandemic has challenged somehow this assumption because, again, during this pandemic, we have been living negative emotions. Think about the isolation, the feeling of, or even the feeling of, uh, of, of just getting sick, very sick, or feeling of like isolation. So there have been physical and emotional vulnerabilities of family business actors. And these phys physical and emotional vulnerabilities have um, created some tensions, both among different family-centered non-economic utilities, so among different family-centered, among different social-emotional wealth dimensions, and also between goals that are centered around the, the family and goals that are centered around the society. Yeah. I will make some examples. So for example, you know, during this pandemic, one of the uh, big uh, unfortunate effects has been that uh, many companies have faced, many family firms have faced the drop in the demand. Mm -hmm. When you have a drop in the demand, one immediate reaction might be, for example, firing your people or part of your people. Yeah. But we know that this creates challenge to one social emotional wealth dimension. And they say, what I'm saying is that sometimes these family business actors have been called to make decisions that on the one hand would have a positive effects on one dimension, like, you know, for example, keeping a good harmony and climate around your family, and at the same time would have a negative effects on another dimension, like, for example, you know, keeping control of the in the hands of the family. So there have been tensions between uh, these uh, dimensions of social-emotional wealth uh, and probably these tensions, uh, uh, you know, call us to reflect more about how we can treat the social-emotional wealth, not necessarily as an umbrella concept, 
but maybe how to take into account these interdependencies. But even if in some way most importantly, we have seen many family businesses that during the pandemic have started, for example, to have converted their production plants and started producing facial masks or started, you know, make donations to the hospital. So there have been some other types of non-economic goals, society-centered, besides the family-centered ones. And so I think, again, there is a, a, here there are some key questions because uh, this pandemic has brought some, uh, you know, increased trade-off. And so the question is, what are the trade-offs now that guide family business decision-making in the aftermath of the pandemic? Think about the trade-off between health and wealth or between life and livelihood. Livelihood is, uh, is somehow a, a function of life, but you know, these are two different things. Or the trade-off between family utility and you know, society utility. And so again, I think that uh, you know, uh, quite uh, uh, a lot of work will be needed to understand how these different types of non-economic utilities uh, create some trade-off and now this trade-off can, if, if not uh, solved, can at least be managed. Yeah. Um, you know, how do family business decision makers define, for example, society versus the family as a, as a reference point? How do they frame decision when new utilities at the society level are taken into account? I think one effect of this pandemic is that it has uh, created the resurrection of society uh, linked uh, priorities. Mm. Uh, so these are uh, uh, other open questions. Another important area where I see some important challenges is the area of long-term orientation and resilience. We will be talking uh, perhaps about resilience at a later stage, maybe, but uh, here what I want to say is that again, we have been driven in working with family firms and helping family firms to be better managed. We have been driven by the assumption that family businesses are typically forward-looking with the intention to grow over generations. I mean, you know, typically this is the way we looked at the, yeah, at the, the, the family company. Now, again, I think that this pandemic has challenged this assumption because I believe that uh, again, the negative future outlook and the increasing uncertainty have led the family business to become more and more backward looking, to become more and more even oriented to survival rather than, than growth. You know, it is when the current situation is uncertain and turbulent and difficult that you look with positive eyes to the golden age of the past. And so you become even backward. And so I think here there is a lot of space for family business actors to reflect and realize what is the role of my family's tradition, of my business tradition, you know, in times of crisis. Uh, how does, you know, the temporality of different actors that are more oriented to the back, to the past, rather than to the future, affects strategic decision making in family business? How can we use at best now our family values, our past values, our heritage, our history to create a competitive advantage? In times of crisis, oftentimes the family values can become a very effective you know, compass to orient yourself during uncertainty. And so again, this is the last you know, area where I see a challenge 
-hmm. is the area of um, patrimony administration, uh, where by patrimony I mean both estate and wealth. Mm -hmm. And here, you know, as you know, as you perfectly know, family business scholars have been so far mainly embracing a management and or a governance perspective when helping family firms. So we have been basically working for and with family firms and in the research arena, uh, you know, with the aim of helping these organizations to be better managed and or to be better governed. Why? Because there was, a, a, again, another assumption in the field that, that is that family, so family capital is a patient form of capital. There are many studies saying this and saying, you know, it's a patient form of capital. So the family, when, uh, you know, for example, gets, when, when the family is not, really, is not really struggling for liquidity and for capital and for patrimonial issues in the, in, the, in the short term. So somehow we as academics have been overlooking asset and liquidity issues. Now, again, this pandemic, unfortunately, due to the economic downturn, due to the cash challenge, due to no, new types of risks that have been appearing, think about, you know, the, the supply chain risks like, related to the pandemic. Uh, these are, all these factors all have increased uh, the salience of asset and liquidity issues for families in business. Mm -hmm. And so I think that uh, we as academics, uh, but also, you know, family business owners and managers will need more and more to also start adopting using a patrimonial perspective besides the management and the governance one. And so this means that, you know, we have to ask or families in business have to ask what change when we embrace a, a patrimonial and or an ownership perspective. So, you know, we. Because when during these days, I've been talking a lot with many entrepreneurial families. And more often, you know, often and often they keep telling me now our, you know, most important problem is to make sure that during this crisis, we don't destroy our patrimony so that when the crisis will be over, we will be able, you know, to jump up again. Yeah. So, you know, here I think, uh, again, uh, um, questions like how can families in business best administer their assets in the new normal characterized by higher risk and uncertainty? How can such assets be preserved for future generations? Are these new challenges associated with COVID-19 and its aftermath changing the way families in business administer their wealth? Think about impact investing. Think about family firm philanthropy, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, also, why do families in business increasingly rely on family offices? We know that there is a, an overlooked phenomenon, yeah. which is the phenomenon of family offices. And family offices, of, of course, when we switch our attention from a management perspective, management or governance perspective to a patrimonial ones, may become particularly important. Uh, how should family office be created and operated in this new normal after the pandemic? what should change in, the prior, in their priorities and in their ways of operation. Another entity that will play an important role or might play an important role are family foundations. Mm -hmm. They're different from family offices, yet very important when you embrace a patrimonial perspective. So again, you know, this uh, pandemic and its aftermath is spurring families in business to uh, shift their priorities and also 
to uh, embrace, to face, uh, to uh, analyze and examine and reflect on a broader set of issues. And these are something, you know, this is something very important and uh, where a family business owner or manager cannot decide because uh, either you, you know, you start working on it mm. or you will passively be, you know, seeing this. And of course, being passive typically, it's not a good thing. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing those challenges, Alfredo. I think while I was listening and digesting those five key challenges, it strikes me that there is a lot of interrelationships among them. And sometimes they can create competing consequences. So as you were saying about the concept of generational transfer, that directly ties to ideas of social capital. Because if you have the time to plan your succession, you can therefore groom the successors, you can embed to them in relationships, they can inherit and take on some of your social capital and, and your relationships and have the time to build the trust with those, with those partners as well. And of course, when succession is accelerated, that process of transfer, that process of embedding an individual into the functioning of the business, but also into relationships becomes that much more difficult. And one of the things that I've seen in the past is relationships can also be inhibiting in the sense that you can over rely on past relationships, but those relationships will have been created for a reason. So for example, around the way a business functioned or external relationships with say suppliers or manufacturers would be directly related to products and services that you're producing. But when you have to pivot and change direction and innovate, it isn't always the case that those relationships carry over and you think about then creating new relationships. And that's very difficult when you then compound that with supply chain problems, as you just mentioned, because you know, relationships, as we know, are not something that become high functioning from the very beginning. You need to gradually build that trust, build that social capital, and they have therefore consequences for the ability to move quickly and to, and to pivot in that sense. So I think it's interesting to see the interrelationships between some of these challenges. And also, I think you know, your point about goals is also very important because I think the pandemic has thrown into stark light what we took for granted as goals what we took for granted as what we either as professionals or even as as personal situation want out of life and, and that has a, a big implication for family firms because it's those kind of thoughts that also steer what they want their business to be and how they want to function so for example you know what you said about on the one hand the challenge of protecting and preserving the family while also having to potentially lose staff and therefore, you know, the, the loss of goodwill that, that may come with that, for instance. And, you know, there's, there's this uh, clear challenge in that respect. I totally agree. I totally agree. You have touched there. I mean, you have elaborated more on, on this and these are important points and, uh, and points that uh, are very much pressing on the agenda of family business uh, leaders. Thank you, Alfredo. Um, maybe I can move to my second question. And we've been discussing this previously, and you, you hinted at this a moment ago, 
that we both agree on the importance for family businesses to become resilient. And one of the things that strikes me, and I, I read one of your recent blog posts on this, uh, is that resilience is not a state, but really it's a property of, of a business, of a well-organized, well-managed business. So what do you see as some of the key actions that family business leaders and maybe even advisors can and should take to support or enable resilience? Okay, thank you. Well, I have recently actually conducted, uh, well, finished, I would say, because it's a longitudinal study, so about a family company that we've been studying for several years, because it's a company that went through uh, four different crises. The COVID-19 one, four different catastrophic events. The COVID-19 one has been just the last one, but before they had flooding, they had fire, I mean, they had some catastrophic events, that uh, every time, you know, was seriously threatening the survival of this business, but from each of that, the company, you know, re-emerged um, quite strongly. And so basically in this study, we were conducting, it's a qualitative investigation where we very much in depth uh, try to understand how this family business organization developed resilience, its resilience capacity. And what and we learned something important. Let me start by saying that, but for me, you know, being resilient, I mean, resilience is the ability of a business, of a firm, to persist in the face of substantial change in the business and in the external environments, and or the ability to withstand disruption and catastrophic events. So this is also generally acknowledged, a generally, I would say, accepted definition. And of course, you know, in the scientific literature, there are some characteristics that are portrayed as being, you know, the typical characteristics that resilient organizations possess, like, you know, a steadfast acceptance of reality, uh, you know, a deep belief of the, uh, based on strong values that, uh, you know, that life is, is meaningful and so, you know, the ability to make meaning out of events and also an ability to improvise, uh, as, as some authors say. Now, what did we learn in the specific case of family business? Well, I think that there are some key, uh, as, you, as you ask, the key actions uh, that can be put in place. What we learn is that, first of all, in a family business, you know, you have... Uh, some actions at individual level, some actions at family level, and some actions at the organizational level. And the actions at the three different levels, this is what we learn, are very much related to each other. Indeed, what we produce in this, uh, in this study is uh, a model, if you want, a multi-level model mm -hmm. that explains how this organization in the end in every you know, phase at each of these catastrophic events and in the end develop the resilient capacity. And what is perhaps most interesting is that at the family level, what we identify in our data is that this company was uh, having four main family logics that played a very important role. We labeled this family, one of the first of these family logics, family heritage and uh, uh, legacy preservation. This indicates a strong need to preserve the family's business heritage and firm continuance. So this company was really, you know, uh, working on that. Another uh, uh, logic that at the family level that played an important role was family historicism, by, when, by which we mean, uh, you know, uh, 
this uh, uh, propensity to capture the strong belief that the family's previous history is formative in building survival instinct. Mm -hmm. A third one is what we call family surrogacy because we observed that, uh, you know, this family businesses, uh, this family was distilling the need to create uh, a substitute of surrogate family culture within the business. So they can, they were very good at, you know, kind of uh, somehow even artificially creating this culture within the business. And finally, we, the, the fourth logic is family emotional investments that uh, shows the family's strong emotional attachment to the business and how it uh, fortified, you know, the, the, the business determination to survive. So what we learn from this study is uh, that... Uh, it's uh, an interplay of uh, aspects uh, that start at the individual level. So there are, you know, some, uh, some key action that starts at the individual level. The fear of loss is one trigger for the whole process. Then at the individual level, you know, the individuals in this family took, uh, you know, what we call the personal steerage and then a proactive offensive. But then at the family level, there were these four key logics that played a key role. And in the end, all of these allowed the company to basically develop an ability to react to the shock, to absorb the shock, and to assimilate this shock. Mm. And we also learned that, of course, there is also a learning to this because uh, the more you face and uh, overcome catastrophic events in the past, the more, of course, you develop a learning ability. So a key thing is that, you know, when you are facing a catastrophic event as a family business, be aware that the family can play an important role. And if you use in the proper way the family system, uh, like, you know, leveraging on your legacy and heritage, you know, leveraging on your history, leveraging also on the emotional reaction and investment that you typically have in a family firm. Typically, you know, this is an advantage rather than a burden. Yeah, those are really interesting insights because this is going to segue into my third question, but the two things immediately struck my mind. One is how family firms are somehow able to use these logics to, as you say, to understand the shock, absorb the shock, and then assimilate and, and ultimately come out the other side. But what, what is also interesting is the idea of, you know, the, the legacy, the emotion, the stoicism. How does that avoid or prevent the family firm from becoming inert? In other words, trying to persist with what it's always done and rather than move away from it because there is, there's two types of resilience in my mind one is you can be resistant resilient by being hard shelled in this in the sense that you know you become you develop this innate ability to to protect yourself against these external problems but at the same time the danger of that is that with that past success, it creates a path dependence where the organization becomes more entrenched in the belief that having survived previous disasters, having stayed the course, so to speak, or strategy adherence almost, that you know, it, there's this risk of it becoming quite inert and not changing. So that's an interesting phenomenon. And I wonder if one of the reasons 
is because they have better absorptive capacity. And what I mean by that is that you mentioned the organizational learning. And it strikes me that because family firms have longevity, family firms have long-standing employees, family members or members of staff that have worked there for many, many years, they will have built up but also saved those knowledge stocks in organizational memory, things that other organizations wouldn't necessarily be able to do because they change leaders more frequently or they change they have a turnover of staff more frequently so i wonder if these qualities of family firms give them not only the ability to hold lessons from the past but then evoke those lessons as well and draw them out of organizational memory at the same time i wonder if you have any thoughts on that I think this is a very fascinating line of thinking and uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, I would agree with you because uh, I think that what you just presented makes much sense uh, given, uh, you know, the distinctive features of family firms. Yeah. One important point perhaps to make is that sometimes, as you said, you know, being resilient, I mean, not being, re what does it mean not being resilient? So let's not forget that resilience comes from you know, in the end comes from hard sciences, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have uh, something, I mean, if you are not resilient, there are two possible, well, the main situation is that either you break up, right? So, so you get completely broken or resilient means that you go back to the initial, to the previous state or that you just are, you know, strong enough to even survive to the, to the shock, let's say. Mm -hmm. Now, the point is that Resilience, actually, we, are, we have been focusing a lot on the, on the bright sides of, this, of resilience, but we have yes. been overlooking the dark side of the resilience. Because sometimes resilience could prevent a family business, for example, for, from pulling the plug. What I'm saying that sometimes might be, and this is a question that we should ask, as policymakers who are called to support businesses, you know, to develop their resilience, and also as family business owners and, and professionals. Sometimes, uh, uh, you know, could be better rather than giving to a company, you know, some uh, homeopathical uh, treatment uh, to try to uh, let them, you know, uh, survive. Probably sometimes, you know, like uh, barely hanging there might be better to have a disruption and to rebuild something different. And this, I think it's an important question that should drive uh, policymaking activities as well. Yeah. So what I think is that we know that every organization, being it a family business or a non-family ones, cannot maintain a sustainable competitive advantage without change and innovation. Mm -hmm. So for sure, innovation and change are needed for any business. And being resilient doesn't mean that you should uh, destroy your innovation and or change ambition. On the other hand, for example, in a study that I recently published in the Journal of Family Business Strategy, where we started, in that case, uh, we interviewed um, the leaders of the 17 winemaking companies in Italy and Australia. What we found is that uh, the leaders in these family firms perceived resilience in four qualitatively different ways. And, you know, one of these ways was, uh, you know, we, we, we said this is 
I mean, refers to the ability to prepare for change, for a change, which means that these leaders show resilience through um, a proactive lens um, as the ability to be ready for a change. Yep. Another one is the ability to control change. The leaders of the second group of companies show resilience as the ability to control external change and to sidestep or minimize its impact on the company by managing what you can control. The third one refers, the third group, to the ability to adapt to change. So here, you know, we are talking about leaders that show resilience as the ability to maintain and consolidate an already solid position in the market. And finally, you know, the fourth group is about the ability to absorb change. Uh, so these leaders show resilience as the ability to absorb change rather than adapting to it. And we have also published a research translation in familybusiness.org about this study. Because if you, if, you, if you build on the findings that we got from this study, you see that resilience is also about change and is also about innovation. So to answer your question, I think that, uh, uh, you know, uh, resilience should not be confused with becoming unchanging because yeah. that would not be good. But at the same time, I also believe, strongly believe that both in academia and in, the, in, the, in practice, in the world of practice, there is a huge need to also consider uh, the potential downside, the potential dark sides of resilience. Even because we know that, you know, to become a resilient organization, you have to invest in resilience when uh, things go well. But at the same time, we know that the resilience capacity of an organization becomes useful only when things go bad. And yeah. so again, there are also, you know, even from a motivation perspective, a motivational perspective, there might be pros and, pros and cons. Uh, indeed, I'm quite surprised that in management, in the management literature, actually the resilience um, literature is not that well developed. I mean, there are some important sure. studies, but most of them are, first of all, conceptual, which is good. But I was surprised to see that, uh, you know, uh, there is not that kind of development that I would expect on a topic that is uh, very often and too often and in the words of practitioners and family business and non-family business decision makers, but, you know, uh, about which we really don't know too much. Yeah. Absolutely agree. I think oftentimes resilience is also caught up in the crisis management literature and then it, it devolves into something that is, as you say, firefighting, for instance. But I'm absolutely completely agree with you. I'm fascinated by this concept that there are different types of resilience and that can mean something different to what a family manager or a family business leader may want to achieve. And also the, this idea of the, of the dark side of it. And Actually, this brings me quite nicely to my final question, really, which is this, what do you see as the distinguishing factor between, say, being resilient and being inert to change and not changing and how to not fall into that trap, um, I suppose? And so with that in mind, how, how can you not fall into the trap of not changing and you know, I think this directly speaks to the idea of not just being resilient, but being resurgent. So how maybe some thoughts from you on how family business can come out of this uh, COVID-19 crisis in, in a positive and powerful way. Sure. I think, you know, uh, being in air to change will be dangerous. 
and being inert to change, of course, uh, if we consider the analogy from the art science, from physics, uh, might resemble like resilience, but I think if we talk about organizational resilience, it, it's, it's a different thing. Because uh, one important thing is that resilience to me is a push, should be seen as a push with rather than a static quality. And this is also what our study were making shows actually. So um, I think that in order to improve, you know, uh, family as well as non-family business responses to challenging times like the one that we are living, uh, I think an important key question that uh, family business owners and managers should ask themselves, maybe even with the help of an advisor could be, should be, who are we? Uh, what does it mean to us being resilient? How do we want to survive and go ahead? And are we willing to change or do we want to survive leaving everything as it is? Mm -hmm. And I think that change, you know, in answering this question, change should be absolutely contemplated as a key means through which you can develop this uh, capability to absorb, react, and assimilate the shocks coming from a crisis. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Alfredo. I think for me, I'll quickly try from the absolute wealth of insights you've given. I'm just going to quickly summarize maybe some key, three key thoughts from that. And I think in the first instance, what you were just describing now about what's important for, for the family firm when it when it comes to resilience, it may very well be that what they desire is to be able to maintain the status quo and to be able to adjust and change the firm, but change it in, in ways that reinforce the legacy of the firm. And I think that speaks to its history, its legacy, and what you, you described earlier in relation to my second question about the state of resilience. And I think that then also marries on to thinking, okay, well, what can we be in the future? So, okay, what we've been in the past and where our tradition is, but can we leverage that to become something new and different in the future? And I think that speaks to two things that we discussed at the very beginning, which is the role of succession and perhaps the role of the ne of next generation members in infusing fresh ideas and maybe fresh potential directions for where a family business could go. And that of course speaks to family social capital and this issue of not being able to plan succession Absolutely. in the traditional way. And then finally, I think what is really the thread running through this is understanding what resilience means to your organization, thinking about how to achieve it, but not at the expense of change and knowing that change and innovation are powerful mechanisms to enable future resilience as well. So I think that speaks to this idea of resilience as a, as a property and not a state in that respect. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, you know, the absorptive capacity of a family business can be, I mean, strongly influenced by family involvement in business, absorptive capacity, and can be, uh, you know, playing a very important role to really understand how you can uh, change and innovate uh, while being resilient. 
Well, Alfredo, thank you so much for giving us your time, but also just sheer wealth of, of insights uh, from, from all your fantastic work. And thank you very much again. And yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for these kind interviews uh, on, uh, on a topic which is very, very important. So thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. Thank you, Alfredo.